Hello everyone, welcome to From No to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? This colloquialism is often equipped without actually giving the question much thought, because surely most people believe that a tree falling makes a noise regardless of whether anyone is present. If you are one of these people, then you've taken up an absolutist metaphysical stance. Now what if I told you that right and wrong exist in the universe regardless of human perspective? A much larger number of people would be disinclined to agree with this moral absolutist statement. Today we look at some of philosophy's deepest questions through a specific lens. Nice. I like this start. <laughs> yeah, so that those two questions kind of highlight, you know, the uh, the idea or the premise of absolutism. And, um, you know, in doing research for it, there are some things about it that seem, um, you know, very common sense or intuitive. And then there's other things about it that, you know, would make a lot of people uncomfortable. <laughs> so, um, and we'll get into uh, sort of the nitty gritty of it. We're going to talk about this as a, as a philosophical um, school or paradigm, which is going to be a, a new thing for us. And um, I, I foresee us doing a lot of them in the future, and the podcast will have sort of a different layout or uh, flow in these, these types of episodes, yeah. uh, which, will be, which will be good. But um, let's start out with, with an overview. How, what's the, sort of the big level uh, picture of what, what is absolutism? When you talk, when you check the dictionaries or you, or, or general talk, absolutism involves the belief or the ideology that a system of some kind has, should hold complete sway over uh, individual needs. Whether that's political or theological, uh, but then you'll also have the idea of the absolute, which arose, as did absolutism as a term, only across the past 300 years. So again, it's another young-ish concept, really, that has had so much influence on us. Gotcha. So in order to be a, a, like a formal philosophy or a paradigm, does a type of thought have to address all branches of philosophy? So do we have to look at metaphysics and epistemology and axiology and ethics and logic? Or can you could something just address one or two and still be considered like a philosophical paradigm? I think something can address one or two of those and be dominant. Uh, the focus can be dominant for those. However, it's almost inevitable. I say almost because I don't want to sound absolutist. <laughs> it's almost inevitable that others, others, other branches are going to play into it or offer alternatives to poke and prod and, and really see how well it bears up. So I think it starts as it starts as an intellectual concept that really is verging on exploring the nature of the universe, mm. but then quickly becomes an exploration of conceptions of God and then becomes political. Right. <laughs> and, and so it, it bleeds, oh, but, but it now maybe bleeds, not the best way. It necessarily grows throughout the branches. Right. So, and you know, in doing research for the show, I had a specific sort of experience of it, you know, looking at different things. Mm -hmm. So it seems like you could look at it in one um, branch of philosophy and probably agree with a lot of its precepts, but then looking at it in a different branch, you might say, well, this doesn't seem to fit or doesn't seem to, you know, work, work yeah. at all. Yeah. Right. So do you think that absolutism addresses each branch of philosophy in some way? I do and and i don't say that I, I we've gotten used to our conversations so i get an idea of where we're going sometimes <laughs> and so one thinks about these things ahead of time and then one spouts off right off <laughs> right off, off the cloth as, as one would say so yes i do because the idea of absolutism plays into 
notions of art, particularly medieval Renaissance art and the idea of the classic or the idea of the it always will be the best or something like that. There's an absolutism in that. There's an, there's absolutism in considering things of theology or religion or spirituality, that, that braided branch, because if there is an unmoved mover, as the Greeks used to say, the, the un, the, the, something that does other things, but is always the cause of those other things. Then you're talking about some conception of God or some theological structure to the universe. But then you're also talking about science. Mm. If, if you're working backwards in science, cause and effect, cause and effect, well, what are the first causes? Were there first causes? Mm. And so, yeah, I think so. And ethics, moral absolutism is one of the, one of the great balloons everybody likes to puncture yeah yeah all right so yeah let's uh let's take a look at these a little bit closer before we we move on to some other um things so uh, let's take it one by one i guess so absolutism in metaphysics right um this is a big issue that that kant and some of the people who have studied kant yes. have explored yeah. yeah um what does what does um absolutism have to say about metaphysics or the you know the universe that sort of thing Hegel, Kant, much later Nagel, in our own time Spinoza, they were all wrestling with this idea of, is there an ultimate reality, which would be an absolute. And, and if there's an, uh, an ultimate reality, does that mean that everything is part of that reality? And then is it disconnected? From what we know as reality, as in some kind of platonic idealism that can only be conceptualized, never reached? Or is it messier than that and involved with the world? And so you get to Hegel and Spinoza, and, the, and they're not debating directly, but in the writing one can see that, that if the, there is an absolute reality, the cause of all, and if it is still part of our reality, then everything within that reality must somehow come from the absolute. And therefore, things that we find questionable, why would they come from the absolute? And, and, and can you be a messy human being and still attain the absolute? These are the questions that theologically arise right and so i'd be remiss if i didn't try to bend listeners minds a little bit here right? so <laughs> yes you would. so the first what i brought up in the intro the tree falls in the forest and there's nobody here mm. to hear it doesn't make mm. a sound mm. you know you hear people say that not all the time but you know it's a, it's a common saying you know and most people just oh okay whatever of course mm. you know a tree's gonna make a noise it's a zen cone leave it alone <laughs> right right so and you know i think the most reasonable people would assume that that's the case so we're going to leave that one alone but we're going to look at a similar question on a cosmic scale and we're going to see how suddenly that sort of thing might that sort of conclusion might not be as simple as it, it appears right so um with with absolutist metaphysics you know you're looking at okay well the big question that gets discussed is is space right the universe right. does the universe have is it infinite is it finite all these sorts of things um and so i'll, I'll read you a, a quick quote okay. from uh leibniz it says therefore the fiction of a materially finite universe moving forward in an infinite empty space cannot be admitted it is altogether unreasonable and impracticable. For besides that there is no real space out of the material universe, such an action would be without any design in it. It'd be working without doing anything. It would produce no change which could be observed by any person whatsoever. These are imaginations of philosophers who have incomplete notions who make of space an absolute reality. So the thing that jumped out to me about that quote is he was having a back and forth and basically what they were discussing is, okay, so you have outer space. Is outer space, um, is, is all of the objects in the universe expanding into empty space, 
or are all the objects in the universe all that there is? You know, and that that's what they're doing. <laughs> yes. So what struck me about his quote is how human-centric it is, right? Oh, yes. So he's dismissing a certain point of argument out of hand because a person couldn't perceive of it and because it's not doing anything. It's mm -hmm. not, there's no design in it. That is, if you're using that as your um, reason for something not to be, is that a valid reason? Is that a valid premise to take? It's certainly, I, I hesitate to use valid because that implies whether it was good logic or not. And, and over time, many arguments have, the logic has finally been dismantled. But but I see, but I know what you're asking, and, and I think that you've you've hit the head of it, which is it is humanocentric, it's anthropocentric, and so it implies that there's nothing in the universe that is not of uh, godly design for humans, which means we're at the center of the universe again, despite Newtonian. And <laughs> right, rather than the Earth being at the center of the universe, right. humans uh, people, are. humans right. are right. Well, of course we think we are because we're the ones who have managed to develop the, the thumbs and the language and, and everything, and, and and even if other things do exist, we'll get to that in a moment. So, it, so, so, but to me, the the thing that really niggles at me uh, with that is the impracticable, <laughs> as if to say that. The universe is simply practicality writ large, and right. I think that's utter nonsense. We, we we can't begin to know everything that's in the universe, and one would be hard pressed to find a practicality to every single thing that has ever appeared, even on our single planet. Right, and so <laughs> there's been a lot of developments in science since. He wrote that, Absolutely. right? And so Absolutely. Have, <laughs> so you have, you know, a law of entropy. Okay, things kind of tend towards disorder. So they might not be practical, or they might start out practical and then become unpractical, that sort of thing. You have um, developments in observational techniques mm -hmm. with science. Mm -hmm. But another big thing is, like we just talked about, he, his quote there is very human-centric. If, if what you're observing doesn't match up with your your human viewpoint he's sort of dismissing it well we've talked about this in the past we see a small sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum we hear a small sliver of this all these different things so and we have instruments that can detect some of these other things but we're still interpreting them through a human point of view mm -hmm. and so basically when it comes down to it it sort of boils back to that metaphor of you have the three blind men with the different parts of the elephant. You sent me the philosophy magazine uh, recently with that on the cover. So you have one guy holding the tail, one guy holding the trunk, one guy holding the foot, you know, and they're all describing the elephant differently. Mm -hmm. Well, the universe is sort of the same thing, right? We've talked about the shape of the universe in the past, how scientists with the best information they have now are saying, okay, the universe is probably shaped like a four-dimensional hypertoroid. You're like, well, what does that even mean? <laughs> and we don't know because our brains can't even comprehend it, right? Mm -hmm. And so basically if science is saying, okay, well, we can't really comprehend the shape of the universe. And then again, working with the best information they have, they're saying, hey, you know what? There's probably a 25, 30% chance that it's a, it's a simulation. You know, it's not, yes. even, it's not even real. Yeah. These sorts of things. <laughs> All of a sudden that question of if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? doesn't become as certain as it first appears when you look at it on a, <laughs> on a cosmic scale, right? So, um, so absolutism and metaphysics, you can see how, you know, your, your answer and your logic that you get to get there is, is very important in your basic conceptions of reality, you know? Yes. And so you're one at the same time. And we've talked about this. We talked about it last week. It, you're in the position of, the responsibility, and I, I don't say this as, as anything grand and glorious, but I think the, the on-the-ground responsibility of a philosopher 
and any one of us, as we've been establishing for years with this podcast, any one of us is a philosopher, can be. The on-the-ground experience requires humility. It requires being able to say, whoops, nope, got that wrong. Okay, let's try that again. Let's redefine. Let's, let's rethink. The absolutism is important in the sense, to me, that it really tempts people toward not having that humility necessarily and wanting things to be yes or no that doesn't usually end well right okay so we've we talked about metaphysics a little bit and now we've got some people saying okay well you know maybe if a tree falls in the forest it doesn't make a sound depending on if the universe is a simulation or not you know so that sort of thing right that segues pretty well into epistemology, right? Mm -hmm. Which is something we've talked about in the past. Yeah. Knowledge, right? Yeah. And so with absolutism, the, the big question is, can you actually know things? Are there things to actually be known, right? <laughs> and so this is a question that we've, we've come back to several times, and yes. especially recently in the past few months. Um, you know, the big question you know, one of the biggest questions in philosophy, and, you know, I, I didn't really realize it until we've had several discussions that we've delved into, but to me, one of the biggest questions in philosophy is, is there a thing in itself? Is there things to be known? Or is that just the way that our consciousness makes sense of stuff? You know? That's a really, really deep and abiding question. That we keep asking. But yeah, we can still, I think, epistemologically, because I'm an on-the-ground kind of guy, <laughs> say, yes, if I stub my toe on a rock, the rock has solidity. I'm, I'm in that, that camp. Uh, yes, uh, to, to go from the absolutely, <laughs> absolutely absurd to the utterly uh, painful, we can see. We can see from any number of viewpoints, we can determine whether a, a person has killed another person, and quite certainly with intent. If we have enough views and we have enough information that comes in, we can know this beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a term we've established in our court systems. So there's reasonable doubt, but if you get to a certain point where evidence is being presented and it removes that doubt, that means something has become known to me. Right. So, yeah, it raises the question, right? And, you know, there's been a lot of um, science fiction based on this, The Matrix, mm -hmm. right? So you have... Mm -hmm. We just talked about, okay, we see a, a small sliver of the world. We hear a small sliver of the world. Um, so our view of the world is necessarily incomplete. But the question arises then, is the small slivers that we get through our various senses and the three pounds of meat that integrates <laughs> them and tries to make meaning out of them, is that meaning that we arrive at actually accurate? Is it does it actually amount to anything? You know, and or, the absolute and the absolutists, the the idea of the absolute in philosophy from not not an aesthetic viewpoint, but from a metaphysical viewpoint, the part that says actually the absolute is embedded in the finite reality, and there are have been uh, people who have written of the the shards, as as, as you put it, the the bits and pieces of things that we see, but then the argument would end up with the conclusion that all of those shards together put the absolute reality in, in the picture. Right. And this comes back to the conversation we had recently about science, right? Mm. And so science is always evolving. You know, we come to sigmas of uh, certainty, um, we put together various lines of evidence. We come to these conclusions. But then almost inevitably, um, some of these conclusions get turned around. And maybe, you know, in rare cases, whole paradigms of science get turned over. But in most cases, it's a, it's a refining, a redefinition, um, and this kind of work towards um, sort of boxing in 
what we are considering something that's knowable. Yeah. Um, the most recent one I saw yesterday was uh, scientists were able to map the surface of a white dwarf for the first time, mm-hmm. pulsar. Mm-hmm. And so they had always assumed that these pulsars, um, they had jets of radiation emanating from the poles based yeah. off their spin. What they found is the very first one that they mapped, what they found out is that, well, no, they have one beam of light shooting off the southern hemisphere, not out of the pole. And then they have a crescent-shaped um, emission of jets also in the, sem- the southern hemisphere, still not at the pole. <laughs> so they said, well, okay, with our current physics, we don't know how that's possible, what this means. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And so that's that's really the rule rather than the exception in science is you you start to develop this breadcrumb and say okay well this trail appears to be going in this direction and then the trail will wildly divert another way yes and so you follow it down there and, and you, know, you do follow and so you're describing as best you can essentially you're just one is describing what one sees with the current level of accuracy of the tools as well as one's own senses. It's, it's, so it's a phenomenological kind of approach. And you're, and you, as you say, you follow the trail. I mean, it, it, you, I was blown away with joy about that story. Also, this week, the researchers who have been working very diligently on whale song, humpback whale throughout. The Pacific, and I don't know if you've read this one, we haven't talked about this, have determined that there is a new mating and homegoing song composed each year by whales. It becomes <laughs> accepted or rejected across, and you can find it on the in the oceanic level. From one end of the ocean to the other, eventually it becomes the song. And one has to ask: In all of nature, where we know that we essentially it, uh, we don't know everything, of course, but we know some bird song. We know the range of the bird song. The chickadees have this these calls and songs and so on. Those don't seem to change within a certain group of chickadees. Why? Why? Other than for for, for me, for out of a sense of culture and creativity, would a species? create new song and where else do we see that's probably for me it does it's not an absolute conclusion but it certainly pushes me even further toward this is another sentient species because they have art (laughs) yeah yeah and i i didn't read that one but i saw another article this week talking about how you know scientists are are thinking that you know and this doesn't seem specifically relative you know elevatory but um what separates humans from animals is self-awareness, right? Hmm. And so, that, and you know, okay, so yeah, if an animal, you know, if they, they can observe and they can integrate information, they can act, but they don't really know, they don't have like a self-experience, you know? And that kind of turns, you know, you start asking all kinds of questions, right? And then how that plays into what what can be known, right? The absolutist is saying, okay, if you're following these breadcrumbs and the trail is is there you know whereas a relativist is saying no you're just walking through the woods and using on the path of least resistance but there's no trail <laughs> at all right you know so you know i'm trying to find those answers um especially within the uh the paradigm of of science of what we do know or what we think we know mm-hmm. um raises all kinds of huge questions about you know knowledge and and you know and epistemology and these things and and to me absolutism in that regard you know as big as it looms in metaphysics in epistemology it's almost more important right? yes it is yes it is it's, uh, it's very interesting so um metaphysics epistemology um how about axiology value judgments how does how does absolutism play in there well i think this is where value judgments and cross over with ethics almost inevitably but if 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 you're an absolutist axiologically if you're a value judgment absolutist you 
you say in one way or another something like this. There is a set of metrics or rubrics or measures by which we determine whether or not something has value aesthetically, artistically, or practicably uh, with tools. But that implies that there's this rigid set. And so then we go back to the question, well, was that built into the universe or was that just an anthropomorphic, humanocentric determination? Yes, probably the, the latter. And so does that mean there's no other way to determine value? For all time, it's going to be this? And, and probably not. But aesthetics is a fascinating field to read in, and I have and do and continue to, and I love it because it's so many different ways of approaching what is the what is art, and then how do we determine the value of art? Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about how much it'll bring at auction. But but you can go you can go there and you can say well let's let's put this out on the table. Are, is there an absolute value of art? If somebody walks into a craft show, an arts and craft show, or a, a, a museum gift shop, or or an arts council, and they look at a piece on on the wall and it's a and it's a painting and it's framed and and the artist is asking uh, six hundred dollars for the piece and somebody would scoff and they do. Well, that's ridiculous. I could go home and do that. <laughs> and as I've said before, no, probably not. But if you if you could, then go ahead and do it. Fine. Nobody's forcing you to, to buy the piece. But if you want to, in practical terms, break it down and say, all right, the cost of the frame, the cost of the materials, the cost of stretching the canvas over the frame, which is the cost of the canvas, the cost of the oil paints, depends on the quality that you're using, and the brushes. And then we put all that aside and say, all right, how long does it take to do this piece? Let's say it took, well, let's be really goofy and, and just say that it took uh, 10 hours, which is probably not nearly the reality. Because, And then you say, how much are you willing to work for an hour in any job that you do? All right. So let's say. an hour times 10. All right, so we have, what, $150. Frame, probably, depending on where you can pick it up, maybe another $50, and and then the materials and so on. So you're still, assuming that the artist can dash off an oil painting in 10 hours, you're still up in the $300 range. But it probably took that artist a lot longer than that. Right, And so even if you want to apply practical terms to something and and say, well, okay, so I'm sort of being insulting and by not when I'm saying that to artists, yeah, pretty much you are because you haven't thought about it. And, and you can do that with music or anything else. So is there an absolute value to the art? There may be an absolute aesthetic value, but I'm not even so sure about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I- that that was a really good example because um as you as you said as you kind of pointed out there absolutism you know in the field of axiology value of judgments um is there an absolute value to the painting from a materialistic standpoint almost you know it it seems pretty evident right mm-hmm. like you said okay well, you have the cost of all of these things but from the aesthetics viewpoint right that's where it you're tempted to think, okay, if if you know if absolutism is a a marble statue, right, and you have metaphysics at the head and epistemology at the shoulders and stuff, all of this stuff is carved out very finely. Then if axiology is the legs, you just have like the solid block of marble. It seems <laughs> like okay, well, you know, we didn't really get that far. But so we'll start chipping away at the marble ourselves, right? We'll practice some <laughs> philosophy. I think what we have to do is go back to like the very basics, okay. right? So if I'm, I'm thinking about, okay, is there a val- is there an artistic, some sort of absolute artistic or um, aesthetic absolute, right? I think, well, let me look at the universe. We know at the, at the largest scales, the universe has structures, right? Mm-hmm. There's voids and there's these large um, galaxy clusters, right? So we could that's built into the universe structure so 
maybe it's as basic as structure itself in an aesthetic, maybe that's absolute, right? Maybe you need to have some kind of structure. And what you mean by structure can be very diffuse. Mm -hmm. You know, that can mm -hmm. be a very difficult thing to define. But maybe a galaxy structure versus a void is an absolute artistic thing. If you have just a blank canvas, although you have canvas, you know, so there's that's a type of structure. Mm -hmm. But maybe at some point you could have so much nothing that it's not there is no aesthetic. Right? Do you think? <laughs> chip, 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 chip. Right. <laughs> I don't necessarily, because if you do a canvas that is blank, you are causing people to ask what it means. And the artist doesn't have to tell you. But people are seeking meaning. People are making meaning. If you can make meaning out of something, perhaps it has value. Then you're talking about galaxy clusters. You wouldn't be able to see galaxy clusters without the void. Even if the void is filled with dark matter and it's all stuff and we're just not... You know, the, in, in art, absence defines presence. So maybe it's not structure then. Maybe it's contrast. Which is which is a structure though. We say I'm not, I don't I won't run away from your structure. I like the idea of, of structure, but we don't have the absolute structure because, as you said about the universe, we don't know yet <laughs> just how large or intricate the structure is. But we know it's pretty intricate, and it's not all based on symmetry. <laughs> so, all right, if if I take I won't touch them, but I, I take your wonderful Legos. And I break them apart, and I put them together in a, a way that I find pleasing, and you find chaotic. Can one argue that there's a structure in that pile, or in the clicking together of the Legos? I could make a structure, right? Right. But have I made a structure by throwing together in a, in a pile? Um, hmm. Yeah, that's hard to say. Yeah, I've, I've made an aggregation. I've made an accumulation. Not necessarily structure, but that's not necessarily art. I would, but what would make it art? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this is, um, this is where a lot of creationists argue with evolutionists about, um, the the universe they one of the the prime arguments is that um the world is intelligently designed because of the artistic nature of creation right if you look outside you can look at a mountain range or a hill or something and say wow this is beautiful and in order for something to be beautiful there has to be some sort of artistic or creative intent um so this yeah this sort of cosmic view of absolutes or aesthetics um, has been explored a little bit, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so maybe it's not the solid block of marble that we were talking about. There is there is some 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 rough cuts, um, but is there any is there any real answers? Is there any is there a compelling argument, right, to say that there is some sort of aesthetic or axiological absolute? in the universe i think there are there are dominant impressions that have been created by human cultures across time and some of those cohere or intermingle and and some don't so i'm not i'm not asserting a complete relativism on this i say that's art you say that's garbage of course a lot of people do because because that that's really a limitation of uh, oh do you must art be representational in a very limited sense which would deny abstract art surrealist art or impressionist art and so on so i think that first to determine whether something is absolute it requires breaking down into the smaller categories hmm. is something beautiful well if you if you are hiking you you do a lot of hiking, but let's let's suppose the, the, the extremist. You're hiking and you have everything that you need, and you see a, a sun 
blasting against the mountainside. And, and you've got water, you've got food, and you're in good shape. And you know you're probably not going to climb that mountain today, but you're there and you see it. If someone is wounded, without water, without food, and they are crawling toward that mountainside, and their sun is blasting against, against it, is it possible that person could still see beauty even at the end of probable life? I think it is possible that, that one could recognize beauty even in, the, in one's own diminishment. That would suggest there's an absolute possibility possibility <laughs> yeah and there's you know again we're, we're talking about it's sort of human-centric things but there is something to this we've talked about in the past um awe right mm -hmm. and that's sort of where awe is is this identification of something that's very beautiful or magnificent but also very dangerous or unknown mm -hmm. you know and you know the way they study this is by giving people pictures of outer space right and you're looking at it and you say, man, look at Jupiter with all the swirling colors and all that stuff. And then they say, okay, well, that swirl of color is a hurricane twice the size of Earth that yeah. would rip you apart and suck all the air out of your lungs and, you know, destroy you in a minute, you yeah. know? Yeah. And yeah. it's one of those things that makes you think, wow, I'm very small. Right? <laughs> <laughs> There's where the sublime comes in. I'm right. small. The yes, the sublime, awe, all of yeah. these things. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that... With, with axiology and absolutism, um, there's a huge, and we, we may not get into it today, but it would be an, a very cool thing to get into in the future is, again, it comes down to language and the relationship of these terms. When we talk about beauty, when we talk about art, when we talk about, you know, aesthetics, and then we try to determine the dependence or independence of these things on human perspective yeah that's where we get into whether absolutism has some sort of role in aesthetics and value yes judgments so, so you know like i said when i started you know we you know first you look at it and you think oh okay well you know i don't know about absolutism having real holding any real sway in in axiology but then if you actually do your do the work of digging into the philosophical you know thoughts behind it mm -hmm. it becomes a little bit a little bit more relevant you know so um we'll take a look at the last one ethics and and logic mm -hmm. and this is where we we get this is where things get controversial right? oh yes oh bring it on this this is good because this is this is the fun part because this is where you you really the tire hits the pavement as it mm -hmm. were is there an absolute is there an uh, an absolutist government that is good for the people there's a, a wild question right is there and then there's the idea of absolutism government uh, holding all sway the, the people having none but then there's this 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 tricky little opposite and it's a lovely word called ochlocracy is that a word you've ever encountered? Um, Ocracy. If I have, I've only seen it written, so I'm not sure if I'd... If I'd uh... <laughs> Mob rule disguised as democracy. Hmm. And the word mob is being used an awful lot to, yeah. on a daily basis in our current society, because what does a mob suggest? When you hear the word mob, what comes to your mind? It's it's disorder. Right? Yeah, disorder. A bunch of lunkheads running around creating violence and chaos everywhere they go. Oh my God! Please come away from us, please. <laughs> it can be used to caricature people, movements, and and intentions, and and it is something that I think we have come terribly close to autocracy, where we we don't value. I'm not suggesting we ever did, but it, we really are in a, a position, I'm on soap, soapbox, I admit that, if we don't value epistemological things, if we don't value knowledge, if we don't acknowledge knowledge <laughs> and, and, and use our heads to follow the things that we find down that trail, whether it's a trail we've made up or a trail that exists, 
we're in for some some worse than we already are in worse stuff because you know the, the, it, to suggest that there's an absolutism to political systems or to suggest that that a majority must always hold sway especially if that majority looks like you <laughs> is is to lead to worse and worse consequences for human beings being together so i find that absolutist notions of politics especially those that toss around the words mobs uh, are very dangerous yeah and we've talked about this a little bit in the past um utilitarianism we did a podcast on yes and so um, it all becomes very difficult to determine. Politics is very interesting in that sort of way, right? And you know, theory, and necessary. Yeah, and, and theories of government, right? Yes. Um, because if you if you just give the the bare premise of utilitarianism, it sounds very good. Okay, well, we're just going to do what's best for the most amount of people. What more can you do, right? <laughs> but then, like you said, it raises these questions. Well, what if the majority of people are of a specific demographic? You know, what if, uh, what if the, the greater good that you're trying to accomplish has very, um, morally reprehensible means? What if you have all these things? What if you're trying to help, uh, not help, it's not the right word. What if you're trying to address problems that have been systemically created and that hurt everybody, but hurt most not a majority, but in addressing those problems meaningfully and with humility and with honesty, you can cause a greater good for everyone. Mm. And then even coming back, you know, like you just said, mob democracy described, you know, disguised as mob rule. Um, thinking about, we've talked about this in the past. I can't remember what episode it was. It was very brief, though. Um, we talked about an absolute democracy and um <laughs> hey should uh should every person's voice count equally um and again just like utilitarianism on face value that sounds very good right hmm. yeah every single person's should, voice should count equally but then we also talked about um and i can't remember the word for it but um essentially a republic um controlled by intellectuals right so rather than having each voice count equally you have you have a representative a representative republic who is um guided by the intellectual leaders of the community and you think okay well that brings up what the downside of an absolute democracy is which is where if everybody's voice counts equally and you the larger number of people believe fallacies or fall prey to conspiracies or these sorts of things then the democracy will make terrible choices and fall apart (laughs) yes so it the whole political (laughs) and governmental um ideas behind um absolute absolutism is is very complex and it has wide-ranging implications for all kinds of societal and cultural issues. Step back even a step further into the def- definitional with the thing you just raised. That makes the assumption that we really, truly believe that everyone's voice should be equal. We haven't gotten there yet in four hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> in a place that we say we really believe that, but we but we we try to initiate systems that deny that uh, possibility. So, so we're talking speculatively about what might happen if everyone did have an equal voice because we don't live in a place that they do yet. Right. <laughs> and, that com- and that comes back to, um, you know, sort of formal versus, we talked about normality a few weeks ago, formal versus normative um, systems, right? Mm-hmm. Because you could live in a society where all of the formal laws promote equality, but... Mm-hmm the normative laws and the systemic laws are in opposition to that. And so even if everybody has a similar, all, um, a similar weight of opinions on paper, expressing that in reality, it does not happen practically. No, you know? no. So, and, and we've had, and we've had brushes with this. 
I don't I don't mind saying this. This is mine. This is not yours to say. But we had a very close brush with absolutism in the recent presidency. When a ruler, someone is in power and wants unrestricted power. I can do this because I say I can do this. That's a form of political absolutism. Uh, and then we have the larger questions that, that we haven't even had. And I know we have, we have a certain packaging of time here. But the, the, the grand ethical, even logical questions of is, is, it, is there absolutely a time when it is all right to kill? Is, is, is war absolutely good or absolutely bad? Is torture allowed in order to accomplish X, Y, or Z? And, and if, it's, if it's okay, then why do we render people to other places that actually allow torture in order to get the information that we want because we say that we don't really go for that? Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and. The, the, the box of questions there is... I yeah, feel like Forky on Disney. You remember Forky? Yeah, yeah. Forky's a, there's a little Disney series <laughs> yeah. that says, Ask Forky. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so that was great. We looked at all of the different branches of, not all the different ones, but the, the main branches of philosophy mm -hmm. and how absolutism applies to them. And um, really, like I promised in the intro, we're looking at some of the deepest questions that philosophy has to offer. And that's what makes absolutism a, a, a philosophical paradigm is that you can look at all of these major branches and all these major questions and it plays some part in them. It has some kind of answer. Um, and it, it raises um, interactions with other philosophical paradigms like relativism, which I'm sure we're going to cover at some point and, and all these other things. Um, do you think it's possible for somebody to be a complete absolutist? Do you think that's in, in all these areas that we've talked about, do you think somebody can completely embody absolutist views? Or do you think at, on some level, a person has to have relativistic opinions? I think that there are people, I think we're all capable of, of doing this. So when I say there are people, I might as well say there's a humanity and we are it. I think there are, there are people who, each of us at some time or another probably goes into the relatively simplistic absolutist because we just want to be right mm. or we just want to be safe. It's like a kid going to a corner to hide. Uh, <clears throat> and, and I think that sometimes people will spout absolutism. But I have to, as a teacher, believe this. I, I never could have... At my worst, I sometimes don't, but at my best, I, I still believe that if someone were to question their thinking and how they arrived at that absolute notion, then they might find that they're not quite as sure as they would wish that they were. Okay. Yeah, and, and the more you and I practice philosophy on the show looking at different issues the more we come to realize that it's very hard to pinpoint anything um we can do the philosophical work of attempting to pen in an idea it's a lot of building fence posts to keep something <laughs> to keep it in but but trying to trying to narrow it down and point to plant a flag on this is this sort of thing is very difficult, right? You're making me laugh because I used to have a garden. I still have gardens, but I used to, I fenced in that garden to keep the rabbits out. I put three layers of fence, eventually of deer and it looked like a little gulag. <laughs> and still the rabbits got in. You can't. Those rabbits are the are the doubt, the questions. They, they, are, they are. They are tenacious. They're going to get there. And they always eat away <laughs> at your at your previously uh, conceived and agreed upon ideas. Um, so, yeah, the the more things that we've looked at, the more we've said it, it's much harder to plant a flag than it is to try to to fence in an idea. And once you fence in an idea, the rabbits come and eat away at a little bit of it. And then you have to try to, you keep, you're always on the move. I think the game is um, to say one, make a statement and then, and then say, is it possible to, 
to move that? Is that just so unmovable that it's and and it's so easy to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, do you think that? So it seems like it would be very difficult to be an, a complete absolutist, right? In, in some aspect of one's life, um, you're likely to say, well, okay, maybe this thing is a matter of opinion, or maybe this thing is on some kind of sliding scale. Do you think that, that reduces any of the credibility of an absolutist paradigm? I think it reduces the strength or certitude of that paradigm. I don't think it necessarily reduces the credibility because there are those who would who would say, yep, absolutely, that's right, that's true, and that's how it is, and that's how it's supposed to be. And so and so to them the credibility is untouchable. I think for a lot of people, if they if they cast a glance that the certitude falls into a sliding scale at least if not completely removed it 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 certainly opens up that movement yeah i think for me um i don't think that it reduces the credibility of it but i think what it highlights is that um forming a philosophy or forming a working conception of how a certain system works draws on a number of different paradigms um and so i think that for certain people with certain beliefs in certain areas, mm -hmm. um, an absolutist paradigm can be a logically cohesive thing. Um, but I think that it would, it's really very, very hard to say that there's a complete absolutist, somebody who uses that across all manner of thinking. I think um, they, like they we talked a hard about time being with other people if they did. Yeah, like you know, like we talked about with some of these other ones. You know, if you look at absolutism in epistemology and knowledge, and you you look at a, you know absolutism in in how we think about knowledge or meaning, it's it's a very compelling thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at absolutism in government systems or these sorts of things, it you know you you really are thinking you're more trying to think of is there even a compelling argument to try to to believe this mm -hmm. so yeah it might not stretch across you know it might be very difficult to be an absolutist across philosophical paradigms but i think that in certain areas it's very compelling um so yeah i don't think that it reduces the credibility but i also don't think that somebody could be a complete absolutist and have a logical consistency across thoughts agree um do you think it's easier or harder to be an absolutist or a relativist Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I I like the question, Joel, because, and I want to know what you think about this, as as with all other things, because to me, relativism is an absolutism of its own. And I'm not trying to just play tricks with words here at all. I really, I, I if. You believe that everything is equally okay always, no matter what. Then you're saying the absolute nature of the universe is meaningless, essentially, yes, uh, right? Uh, without the structure that humans yes. want to push yeah, there we things. go. There go. Exactly. Yeah. So that's um that's great. It, you can become so relativistic that you're absolutist, yes. which, is, <laughs> which is a funny thing. <laughs> so yeah, I mean. If you look at it that way, um, it's almost two sides of the same coin once you get to, once you get to one part of it. it. It bends back in on itself. Yeah. Um, in regular everyday life, it's a little bit harder, though, because, you know, you, you come up, it's, and the best way to think of it is with hard issues, right? If we want to talk with somebody about um, if God exists or if abortion's right or wrong or these sorts of things, right? Do you think it's easier for somebody to say, well, you know, that's that's up to somebody's personal belief. Or do you think it's easier for somebody to say, no, there absolutely is or isn't a God or no abortion absolutely is or isn't wrong? What, what do you think the easier? I, that's, a, that's a very interesting question because I'm not sure that – I'm not sure that there is an ease to it. I think people who hold absolutist viewpoints on – issues of choice 
didn't necessarily get there on an easy path, but people who want choice are fighting a really hard battle too. And so I, I don't think it's a matter of ease. I think it's a matter of what becomes more comfortable in one's view of how things ought to be. Hmm. And, and I think that in turn <clears throat> is implied uh, in a necessary constant discussion of constitutionality and the things we just assume that are there that life liberty pursuit of happiness liberty well liberty is a concept and and it needs much exploration does liberty mean you can do anything you want to to anybody at any time certainly not does it mean you can say anything you want to to anybody at any time no it doesn't <laughs> and constitutional scholars on all sides of the fences, so to speak, have, 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 have arrived at that. So, you know, it's lazy to say, well, I can do anything I want at any time because that's what the United States is about. That's just lazy. That's not even thinking. That's just uh, tossing an opinion off because it justifies whatever you want to do. But I, but no, it's not, it's not easy. If, if, liberty means being able to do things right yeah i would i think that there's a lot of contextual factors that play into whether or not it's easier to be an absolutist or relativist yeah. there's a lot of personal background and, and all sorts of things that play into it but i would still posit that it's easier to be a relativist the reason i say so is because if you look at it Let's take one of those two topics I just mentioned. Is there a God? Isn't there a God? Okay. Or is abortion right or wrong, right? Let's go with the God one. <laughs> okay. Is there or isn't there a God, right? If you're a relativist and you say, well, that's really just up to somebody's personal opinion. Or if you're an absolutist and you say, no, there is a God, right? If the absolutist says there is a God, then I think that there is a, um, there's a belief, right? There's a, mm -hmm. there's a lack of cognitive dissonance to drive them in the opposite direction. If you're a relativist and you say, well, it's really, you know, we can't know it or it's up to other people, you know, each individual, that person still has a belief. They're just not stating what it is. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's possible for them to say, well, we don't know and leave it at that. Even for philosophers like you and me, yeah. right? <laughs> we can say that and be honest. We're not lying. Okay, no. well, I, I don't know if there's a God or not. But we do believe that there is or isn't. Yeah, we there, yeah, we have something in there, and, and, then, and then we're not being intellectually honest if we don't explore it. And there, <clears throat> and there are people, there are pe dear people in my life who believe in a God, who, who, but do not hold well with the formulations of parts of organized religion. There, there are people who believe that there's a God, but God doesn't behave in the ways that structuralists like to say it all over the, the map. So is there an, an absolutism in declaring that there is absolutely a God? Yes. Is that easy? It's e if, I see what you're saying about easy. It's, it's easy to say, no, nah, you, you go your way, I'll go mine, and we'll be fine because it's safe. Mm -hmm. I think it's equally easy to slam a door in somebody's face. We do it all the time when we get phone calls. <laughs> we get people knock on the door and want to sell something. Bam. No. It didn't used to be as easy to do that, but I think people have, I think doors closing have been a lot easier than doors opening lately. Hmm. So. Yeah. So, man, this was, this was great. I, I like this a lot, and that gives, it gives me a lot of hope for future episodes on, on philosophical paradigms, because I really like exploring how it addresses each branch and all the things that go into it. Yeah, that was and, fun. And, um, you know, I think that it'll be fun in the future. I wanted to do it this episode and we ran out of time, but it'll be fun in the future to sort of practice philosophy in the sense of let's look at an issue. Like, is there a God? And one of us will be an absolutist and one of us will be a relativist and we'll try to, we'll try to come up with <laughs> logical arguments, you know, and be yeah. kind of a, a game. But yeah, uh, yeah it was a lot of fun. And uh, until next time. Yeah.